spiritual path, you have to, to long for truth, like someone drowning longs for air. To be that desperate to, uh, to see the truth. This is a, a very rare kind of dedication and uh, very hard for uh, us ordinary human beings to aspire to that kind of one-pointedness, that kind of clarity where, where truth, realizing truth, has that urgency, that importance to us. Because the uh, affairs of, of our worldly existence seem to grab our attention so easily. The... Uh, The mind easily follows uh, the passions, follows anxiety, follows responsibility, follows sexual desire, follows violence. These things excite and interest, captivate the mind so easily. They seem much more important, much more real. much more interesting. And truth, what is that? Peace seems so insignificant, like the, the space between two notes in a piece of music. Of no importance. Insubstantial, ephemeral. The mind drops instead into, into being caught by the, uh, the attractive, the frightening. The newspapers, the media dwells heavily upon the, the instincts we have for sex and violence. They attract the attention, grab the mind. The images linger long in the mind. Whereas images of, uh, of peace, of truth, of harmlessness, they don't, they don't linger, they don't compel, they don't attract our attention. 
when my mind wanders into into memory, it doesn't. Uh, I don't have memories of insights that I had coming to mind. When the mind wanders, it, it picks out highlights of our life, the terrible failures, embarrassing uh, difficulties, the big successes, where I won. picks out emotional high spots. Our attention goes to those places. But the, the Buddha pointed out that, um, that uh, this effort, the effort of, of realizing the true, the complete uh, abandonment of all limitation, the complete uh, exhaustion of all attachment, all defilement. This is the greatest task. This is uh, this is the uh, the subject of most importance. So we have to turn our mind towards it. We have to to uh, steer the mind towards this task and really uh, appreciate its importance from the, the bottom of our heart. The Buddha said that uh, to uh, to be enlightened, to uh, to be free uh, uh, of all defilement, this is more difficult to do than to defeat in single combat an army of a thousand men, single-handed. That's one of you versus a thousand of them, and it's more difficult to do that. Uh, is more difficult to be enlightened than to do that a thousand times over. So that's you and a million others. You against a million others to defeat them single-handed. So it's plain that this isn't an easy job. This is not a day at the beach we're talking about. So um, if anybody wants to leave, <laughs> You know where you came in. But it is because this is the most worthwhile, the most um, important thing that it's, it's worth attempting. Like they, one can come up with difficult or impossible tasks. Um, you could climb up the north face of the Eiger with a piano on your head. And that'd be very difficult. But the result of it wouldn't really... Uh, bring you a great deal of joy or probably quite a bit of self-satisfaction. I've, I've climbed the Eiger with a piano on my head. It's quite an achievement. But the glory would probably wear a bit thin after a little while. So it's not just a matter of it being difficult that makes it useful, but the fact that this is the, uh, the essential, the root uh, problem in, in our life. And that uh, once this uh, problem is solved, once uh, there is freedom from that, then our life becomes uh, pure joyousness and uh, a fountain of that for the world.
Now, from the outside, obviously, this uh, this battle doesn't really look like very much. The papers are not full of of um, today. Amaro Bhikkhu took one mindful step, Sl plastered all over the front page of the Sun. Venerable Mahesi, three consecutive mindful inhalations. Reports are waiting to be confirmed. Venerable Sobano, one mindful spoon of, of rice, chewed with complete composure. These things don't make the papers. These are not exciting. Our lads out there wrestling with the Nama Rupa Vinyana Vortex <laughs> doesn't really have the, the same kind of appeal as as the statistics of, of um, the warfare in the, in the Gulf. But uh, in some respects, this is a, a, a more important battle. This is not, uh, I'm not trying to say uh, there's something special about us as a group of people, but just that uh, this is, uh, say, the, the battle with Mara, the battle on the most profound level, the, uh, the task that all beings ultimately face is that of understanding our own nature, seeing through the uh, ignorance which blocks the mind and witnessing truth, realizing the truth of things. With regard to uh, the dependent origination, this is a theme that uh, we spent a lot of effort contemplating during uh, these uh, winter retreats. This is the um, the uh, essential pattern which describes uh, our the nature of our existence that uh, the Buddha described and talked about and uh, encouraged uh, the, uh, the understanding of. And it's a, a description of how uh, we come into existence as an individual being in the world, how we experience, how we come to experience life like this and how problems arise within it. And uh, talking about this today, what a, an image that uh, came to my mind was, it's rather like, the way one can describe the process, it's rather like a seed. Uh, in the beginning, in the beginning there is only Dhamma, there's only the, 
the uh, primordial heart, the, the Satya Dhamma, the ultimate reality in uh, this is the uh, say the uh, the ultimate basis of all things all materiality all mentality even uh, physicists nowadays they talk about uh, quantum qu the quantum vacuum which is the uh, formless energy field out of which all matter all particles arise and disappear you can watch them arise out of the vacuum and disappear back into the vacuum. And they use terms like calling this the well of being, such like things. And uh, this is the ultimate ground, the ultimate field, the mind ground, the, the background to all our experience, that out of which all thought, all feeling, perception, all materiality, the whole physical world, the whole mental world arises. So you can say uh, our experience begins uh, out of this, this uh, suchness. And then uh, we say that uh, because of, of uh, due to inattention, or uh, not seeing clearly, or the conditioning of the mind, then a form arises, sankhara, is uh, that which is formed, that which has shape, and this is like a seed. And just that arising of the seed, that's like a, a particle arising out of the, the formless energy. It's like a, a pattern, like a crystal, a seed emerges. Now within that seed, there is the uh, the template for the whole tree, the whole the whole uh, being to come into existence. All the information is there, but it's yet as unformed, as yet undeveloped. And what you have uh, in the the process of the Paticca Samuppada is the description of the development of that seed. So that which goes from a uh, a, a simple pattern then that develops, so that once there is the sankhara, any kind of mental formation, that, that hardens into, that crystallizes into a, uh, a full-scale type of consciousness of the mind, or of eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, some form of consciousness. And as soon as there is some particular formed pattern of consciousness, then that immediately sets up the uh, feeling of subject and object. As soon as there is um, the scene, then there, there's the, the seer. There's uh, the sound of my voice and the feeling of me speaking. There's a, a feeling of uh, pressure of, the, of my legs on the mat. And me that feels it, there appears to be the, the sense of subject, object, me and the world. And this, this uh, as this, say, hardens, develops and grows, then uh, we have the, uh, what's called the uh, salayatana, the six senses, which means 
uh, if you have a subject, an object, then the senses, there's me and the world, then the senses are the interface between me and the world. They are the way in which everything that I know about the world is transmitted, is formed. It's the way the pattern, the particular pattern is spun. So once you have a, a body, once you have um, a form, then you have that, uh, that uh, limitation yourself separated from the world and then the senses dictate the uh, the pattern that is is created i see the world from here my eyes see a different world than yours do my ears hear a different world than yours do my thoughts my feelings they are the pattern that they are because of the conditioning that uh, that has happened here because of of uh, where i'm sitting what I'm doing. So you see then this, uh, uh, this pattern forming itself, growing up, and then forming into, once you have the, the, uh, yourself and the world, the feeling of me and the, and the outside world and what I see, hear and feel, taste, touch, smell, the world of feelings, sights and sounds, still there's no problem. And this is the, uh, this is the, the world that, uh, for, most of the, for the most part, that we abide in, that we dwell in. Seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, touching. And so far there's no problem. This is just the way it is. So this is like a, a full-blown tree with its fruit, standing there quite happily. And then desire uh, happens along. And desire, this is like uh, the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Desire happens along. And so then there comes uh, greed for the, for the fruit. Possessiveness comes in. And then the, the whole process of desire, attachment, uh, grasping, becoming, and, uh, and birth come into being with birth then there follows old age, sickness and death sorrow so the trouble always begins with desire up to that point there's just we are still uh, very open to the sense of, of truth of suchness there's still a, a clarity of mind there but as soon as desire comes in, then that clarity is lost, is distorted. There's a, an inevitable blindness. Now the, um, we can think about desire in, in many different ways. Often we think of it just in terms of, of sense desire, wanting to have nice things, uh, enjoying pleasurable things, but there's also uh, a strong sense of, of uh, ambition or desire to become, which is very uh, a lot more subtle and a lot more or reasonable. Uh, particularly, like for people on this retreat, there's uh, the desire to become and the desire to get rid of can get pretty, 
uh, rampant in, uh, in our minds, just um, where a lot of the sense desires are kind of shut down and there's not much variety or not much happening there, then the desire to become can, uh, can really uh, gather strength. I remember for, for years I was uh, determined to be the super bhikkhu. I had to be the best at everything, to be more ascetic, more diligent, um, more humble, uh, more everything than everybody. I was determined to be to be uh, the uh, the very best, and which seemed quite a reasonable thing to do uh, at the time. But it became, it was a, a kind of quiet uh, obsession going on in my mind of the determination to, to, uh, to always do better, to be more extreme, to be more ascetic, to do more um, difficult practices, to, um, to sit up longer, to, uh, to eat less food, to, to do this and to do that, kind of better than everybody else. And uh, after some time, even though, you know, technically one was kind of doing all the right things, and it was all sort of on paper very praiseworthy, and, uh, and looked good, well, most of the time, but <laughs> what I was missing out on, uh, what I was not seeing was that uh, that the whole thing, the whole motivation to, to, to be good, to, to, to do things well, and to, to, be ex to, to be excellent, was motivated by a, a gigantic sense of self, like me wanting to, to get the prize, me wanting to be the best. And uh, that my concern for other people was actually absolute zero. I didn't give a damn about anybody else. They were just sort of um, walk-on parts in my great saga. This is my, my voyage to, uh, to, to glory. I was all kind of lining myself up to be kind of the uh, kind of great um, Dharma teacher, savior, etc., etc. First patriarch of West Sussex, etc. But, um, you know, and, and it, uh, it all seemed quite honorable and, and, uh, and good, but when I had a, a, a quite shocking realization into the, uh, what my mind was doing and how extremely selfish uh, it, I had become, it, uh, it was quite uh, alarming that uh, I had taken on a, a tremendous amount of, of um, ambition simply for, for personal gain and uh, personal uh, prestige and, and self-aggrandizement, self-satisfaction, which is not the path. <laughs> I, uh, even after this, uh, I, I throttled back quite a lot after, after I had that, uh, that kind of insight. I throttled back quite considerably. I still witnessed uh, an awful lot of, um, you know, whenever I did something well or got praised for something, there would be this 
this uh, little glow arising in my insides, sort of well done me. And uh, there was still quite a lot of, uh, of attraction towards the idea of being a, a big teacher, you know, big Ajahn, be up there like Ajahn Sumato and kind of have a nice big cushion and uh, get, get the, uh, the nice alms food and little packages from devoted um, angelic lay people who would kind of waft up and, and uh, offer you all sorts of nice things with adoring eyes. And I thought, oh yes, that's, 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 that's me. I can do with some of that. And I uh, was still very attracted by this idea of being the big Ajahn. This is very appealing, kind of. Yeah, it's kind of cruised through the rest of my life on a little kind of cloud of adoration. Very nice. <laughs> and then uh, I was on a, this was uh, uh, about five years ago. I was on a retreat with Ajahn Sumato, and I just, he just invited me to go off and teach a 10-day retreat in Switzerland. This was, um, I was only just finished my fifth or sixth Vasa, so this was kind of big stamp of approval from the teacher. Obviously, I'm a highly advanced being, being invited to go off and teach on the continent. <laughs> International Dharma teacher, yes, looking very good. And... Um, so he said, well, would you like, uh, I was asking, he was going to teach a retreat in Amaravati, and I, I was uh, running, helping to run the office and organize things there at the time, and I said, well, who would you like to sit on the retreat with you of the junior monks? And he said, well, would you like to? And I said, oh, well, yes, because usually the, the more s uh, senior people would just take care of things in the monastery, and the junior ones would get the chance to sit with, uh, with the Ajahn. So he said, well, you're going to teach this retreat in Switzerland, and you haven't done a 10-day retreat for a long time, so I thought it might be quite nice for you to, um, uh, to uh, refresh your, your memory for that kind of situation. So I thought, oh, very good, lovely. So there I was um, sitting there for the first four or five days, and, and um, I, was get, I was getting very, very uh, peaceful and blissful, just, just sunbathing, in uh, Ajahn Sumedho's aura, and but I begin to, began to notice that there was all these hassles. On this retreat, there was this poor woman who was a, a chain smoker, and she'd stopped smoking just before the retreat, so there was this ab absolutely agonizing, gut-wrenching cough that she was uh, stricken with all the time. And she was determined to sit in the meditation hall and so we, we sat there with this poor woman hacking and coughing and gasping away. And um, there was some catastrophe with the English Sangha Trust. We had to have an English Sangha Trust meeting one afternoon. And there was this whole succession of, of, um, of hassles and calamities and, and, uh, and then being the, the, sec the uh, assisting monk, then there was you know, people on the retreat who were going through traumas and breakdowns and, it was sort of a, there seemed to be quite a, just a high concentration of this, on, on this particular retreat. And so just on the, the day I thought, good grief, it, being a senior monk is real hassle. I mean, I'm going to have to spend the rest of my life doing this? Oh dear, don't like the look of that. And then the next day, 
Actually, somebody got a telephone call from his sister in America saying, um, our mother's about to die. Can you come? This was at eight o'clock in the morning. And so then uh, he didn't come to the morning sittings. I thought, funny. And I'd heard about this phone call, so I thought, this is very suspicious. And then uh, at the mealtime he said, um, I leave the retreat up to you, Venerable. I've got to go to America. So there I was, scarcely, uh, scarcely got my wings, and I was having to take over from Ajahn Sumedho in the middle of a 10-day retreat with us 40 ardent, highly charged meditators, and then me having to, to run the show. So uh, I thought it was uh, wonderful justice. Just at that very moment when I was... Uh, had the, uh, the idea of being the big Ajahn had completely lost its glamour and any kind of appeal whatsoever, suddenly there I was. Now the desire to become is very much tied up with that uh, subtle sense of um, improving or progressing or uh, restlessly discontent with uh, the present and just wanting to, um, to make more of yourself, to be a better self, to be more new, improved, deluxe model of yourself. You know, me with, um, me with a, 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 a bit more uh, glamour and, and uh, wisdom, me with uh, an enlightened mind, or me with uh, a charming personality, or whatever, me with um, extra qualities. And its counterpart is the, the, de the desire to get rid of, to annihilate the vibhava-tanha. Bhava-tanha and vibhava-tanha. A vibhava-tanha is then the, um, what they call it, the annihilationist tendency. And this was something, because along with my, um, my tendencies towards bhava-tanha and the desire to be the, the, um, uh, the next patriarch, etc., um, I, I always had a very positive view towards life. Whenever I, I heard other monks uh, making um, kind of negative or caustic remarks about the, about the world or about the conditioned realm or... God, wouldn't it be nice when this is all over? Kind of <laughs> expressions that uh, some of our venerable Ajans would occasionally come out with. That um, I would be quite disgusted and dismayed. Oh, they're so negative. They've got this horrible um, bias against the conditioned world and, and life and, and uh, people and things. There's this sort of subtle gripe against. Um, uh, the material world and people and things and relationships and I thought that's really unfair I mean after all there's a lot of, of really good positive things in life but um, one detected this certain sense of, of eagerness waiting for it all to be over one of the, the bhikkhus used to quote with a, a, a gleam in his eye this uh, lines from the Verses by Sariputta in the Teragata, which go, 
I do not long for death, I do not long for life, but I know my time is coming, like a servant does his wages. <laughs> you think, ah, and the prospect of, uh, of living long, people would wish him a, a long life and happiness, he would feel a shudder of, of uh, anticipation. So anyway, what I witnessed over the, the last few years after I've thoroughly um, grown out of the Bhavatanha phase, I now witness these very self-same, oh, wouldn't it be nice when this is all over? <laughs> you don't have to bother. I think it must be something to do with coming into your 30s. Suddenly that, um, the fire starts to, to cool down a little bit. I've begun to, to notice this uh, arising of this dull annihilationist uh, tendencies in my own mind, just like the, the attraction of oblivion. Oblivion. Like there's a, um, I was thinking of a, there's a, a painting by John Martin, of some Greek, some agonized Greek hero climbing through this, this huge rocky canyon searching for the waters of oblivion. I get this image flashing into my mind sometimes, like, oh yes, <laughs> wouldn't it be nice just to have nothing, <laughs> nothingness. And one can uh, try to do that in, uh, in the, the spiritual life, because um, one is face to face with a lot of uh, unpleasant or difficult uh, mental states, with uh, having to live with people that that uh, you don't necessarily like a great deal. That you know you're you're married to you know all these these people. Uh, I mean, we get to move around a little bit and change company uh, now and then, but you know you're tied very closely to this great uh, great crowd of people and. And there's not many escapes, not many distractions, and particularly during a retreat like this, where you know everything is is sort of shaved down to the to the bare limit, and everything is done in, in a group. So you're supposed to be there, even if you're not there. There's this thought in your mind, so that one can only really escape into just blotting everything out, into numbing numbing the mind, going into sleep just um, dulling the mind and, uh, and blotting everything out, just wanting to not exist. And this, uh, this has got its own comfort, sleep is, is delicious, uh, but then you wake up, uh, because our, the basis of our life is Dhamma, which is awake, which is, which is true, which is uh, totally alive. So that any attempt to uh, to negate that or to um, go against that has to be doomed to failure, has to fail. So that no matter how much we try and eradicate the universe, we keep waking up and the damn thing is there, again and again and again, every morning, never fails. I had this. Uh, rather horrible, when I was going through a rather 
a negative a spate of, of, of negativity of this kind. I had this really horrible dream uh, where I was I was eating my own hands. I didn't taste of much, but uh, I was eat I like I was eating my hands like devouring my own hands, not kind of gobbling, but just kind of slowly chomping my way through. I actually managed to stop before the two fingers on my, last two fingers on my right hand uh, survived. But the rest all went. And I woke up in the morning and I thought, that's pretty weird, kind of a, what on earth was that about? What was that talking about? And I've been, I've been feeling a bit, uh, um, Uh, I could feel that these negative or, or um, annihilationist kind of feelings I've been having were, were self-destructive or, or, or very unhelpful, even though there was uh, you know, a certain relief there. And then I realized what this dream was telling me. It was like, you are, you are uh, destroying your own faculties. You are removing your own, those very tools which help you in life that the, the mind which is awake and which is conscious and can think, which is intelligent, you are, you're blotting that out, you're, you're disabling yourself from, from actually freeing, uh, freeing the mind, freeing yourself. And that um, you know, there may be a certain satisfaction in it, but uh, you're, you're destroying your own, your own faculties, your own capabilities. And so this uh, had the result of, of really of waking that up, very um, giving me quite a, a shock, and waking up that uh, that uh, uh, resolve to to not just go into negativity, to that escape through oblivion, through obliteration, through uh, nullity. It it just doesn't do the job, and the only way that we actually ever really can find satisfaction is through the development of, of, uh, of being awake and uh, pure-hearted, unselfish. Now that uh, selfishness or, or um, uh, or subtle negativity can, can still stay with us on a very a, a, in a very unconscious way, that even when we uh, we develop a very pure or concentrated mind, we can still uh, be somewhat uh, blind to the uh, to the whole picture. We can we can still be quite focused around our own life, and uh, and shutting off other people, so that even though um, you know you feel like you're doing all the right things. Still, there's a, one is walled in by the sense of, uh, of I, the sense of self is like a, a little prison which makes us unconcerned about the, uh, the feelings in the hearts of others. We become, um, so even though we're not intending to, to wipe out the world, we're, you know, we're intending to be awake and alert, still there's an unconscious, um, selfish, Tendencies can can screen out the rest of of uh, of humanity of the sentient beings, 
And this is very much what the, uh, the Bodhisattva principle is about. That I realized that uh, what I needed to do was uh, to, uh, to counteract the negative and dull um, tendencies. Those feelings in me which were uh, pointing towards, well, it would be really nice when this is all over and I don't have to bother anymore. And to, to pick up the, the Bodhisattva heart which says, I don't care if I have to do this for eternity. I'm quite happy to keep coming back again and again and again and again and again and again and again, just so that I can help other living beings to, uh, to get through life a little bit more easily. There's a lovely story uh, I ran across um, about, this is in the Judaic tradition, this was a story of a, a rabbi called Rabbi Leib, and he was a, a, chassid, a chassid, chassidim, one of the chassidim, anyway. And uh, he said that uh, before, he was, uh, before he was born, he refused, but he refused birth. He said, I'm not going down there. Yeah. <laughs> you see the colossal amount of confusion and stupidity in the human race. I'm not going down there. It's a total waste of time. I've had it. So then he said, I had, uh, what happened was this character came along, this peasant with a shovel on his shoulder. He says, what are you doing here? I work incessantly just so that people can have a little bit more joy and a little bit more comfort in their lives. And what are you doing? You're just lying around here all day. Don't you think life has some human purpose to it? Come on, I'm going down. I want you to help me. So he found himself getting born. And he said that, uh, that the peasant with the shovel was actually the, the Baal Shem, the, uh, the founder of the Hasidim. And that uh, he said that, uh, that, that the Baal Shem spends his time wandering through the, the upper reaches of the, uh, the divine realms, searching out kind of useful helpers and kind of booting them down into the, onto planet Earth to help some of us uh, poor beings. There's a, a, a story, there's a very similar story in, uh, of uh, Ramakrishna. That, um, in the Hindu tradition, that, uh, there's, uh, his chief disciple was Vivekananda, and, and uh, Ramakrishna described this visionary experience of what had happened before they were born, and he said uh, Vivekananda was, was uh, sitting there like the archetypal sage, totally absorbed in meditation, close to the mountain of the Absolute, absolutely wrapped in meditation. And um, out of the, uh, the golden light of this realm, uh, there, the, the form of a small child wove itself uh, out of the golden light and, and appeared in front of, of the, uh, the meditating sage. And this child started to play and roll around and laugh and giggle. And it was so charming and so sweet that the, um, the meditating sage couldn't but uh, be attracted, have his attention attracted by it. And then once uh, he'd pulled the sage out of his meditation, the child just said, I'm going down. Come and join me. 
And that was Rama, little, the little child was Ramakrishna. And uh, Vivekananda became his chief disciple in, uh, in their life. I find these uh, something uncomfortably familiar about these <laughs> this kind of incidents that uh, one sees that there's a very strong uh, tendency to just hang on to pleasant, peaceful, calm, bright states of mind and just have that, oh, this is the stuff. And then just not to want to be bothered, not to want to have to think about anything or anybody, but just to, to bask, to just uh, fix your, your attention on the pure, the absolute, the unconditioned. But what really frees us, what really uh, liberates, is that uh, that readiness to not only uh, uh, respect emptiness, to not, to not fix our minds on the empty, on the formless, but also to be ready to act with generosity, to act uh, externally with kindness, with um, unreserved giving, warmth for other beings. And uh, you have this represented very much in Buddhism, like I was talking the other night about wisdom and compassion, that the, the wisdom side of our nature is that which slices through all delusion, which pierces uh, all... Uh, selfishness, any kind of sense of, of living beings or any kind of separateness. It sees the ephemeral nature of all conditioned things. But then the compassionate side of our nature, the, uh, the, uh, the compassionate spirit, is that which is always ready to lend a helping hand, to give, to share, to help, to encourage, to uplift, or to scold, or to push to uh, fully engaged with the uh, with other beings in the conditioned world these are the two aspects of unselfishness and uh, when we we learn to to recognize all forms of uh, of uh, attachment of any sort whatsoever then uh, we find we're ready to to bring forth both these aspects of reality we have to to see that um Yes, it matters. The world matters completely. Feelings matter. People matter. The world matters. It's supremely important. But at the same time, it's completely unimportant. It doesn't matter. People don't matter. Things don't matter. The world doesn't matter. It's all just a bubble. It's all empty. And this is the paradox that we live with. It's a, a tremendous uh, 
puzzle for the thinking mind. You know, how can these two things be true? But it's what, uh, what you find yourself living with and seeing and abiding with uh, constantly in uh, developing the path that uh, my problems matter, but they don't matter. I am real, but I'm not real. With um, the development of this kind of understanding, you know, one can feel quite uh, perplexed or frustrated, or, or um, when one tries to figure it out, or one feels attachment that uh, is blocking the mind. That we can't see the emptiness of something, of some feelings, or some thoughts, some memories. We're unable to, to really uh, taste that, to see that when something seems to be completely solid and real, that its, its relative truth has taken on absolute qualities. Then you know, we're only seeing you know, half of the picture. Now with uh, with respect to that, one of the most important things to recognize is that just because we know we should let go, it doesn't mean to say that we can let go. And it doesn't mean to say that there's something wrong with us, that we don't. Many of our attachments, a human life is an is a incredibly powerful experience. And there's very strong forces of, of attachment and, and uh, natural physical forces, chemical forces working on the basis of, of, of instinct and um, emotion. And so that um, it's not like just switching off a light, like deciding I will never get angry again. I will never be possessive. I'm not interested in sexual desire. I'll stop, I'll stop feeling sexual desire now. Click. But it's not so easy. You know, we can set up an intention we can see the value of, of uh, freeing the mind from um, those kind of, of uh, passions. But it, it takes a tremendous amount of patience. And one thing that Ajahn Chah used to, to stress is that uh, often, most often, we know we should let go, but we can't. We say, let go. Let go. Let go. Let go. Let go. Nothing happens. So, what we have to do then is just to examine that process. Just to be fully conscious of that, that attachment that's there and to see the result of it. What is the result of holding this? What does it go to? You're not criticizing, you're not saying that you're an evil person, or weak, or stupid, or, or whatever. You're not trying to justify it. Just, just to recognize there is this holding going on. And then 
by observing that, by looking at it, then we see the result of that holding. Holding uh, onto uh, a passion, holding onto a memory, holding onto an identity, identifying with uh, some aspect of, of our character, of our past, of our, uh, our situation. And then by seeing directly the result of that attachment, we see that holding this is painful. Holding this is, doesn't satisfy, it doesn't bring anything, it doesn't have any result or conclusion. It's, uh, it doesn't resolve anything. Once we see as we see the pain of attachment, then we begin to be able to let go. Until we actually really see that, feel the, the pain that comes from attachment, then we won't, we won't let go. But as we see that, if we let our mind just settle on, on that, then we're able to acknowledge that, fully accommodate, understand that, and then because we see the relationship between the attachment and the suffering, whether it's physical or mental or emotional or whatever, once we see that relationship and have fully uh, digested it, then we, we can let go. We're no longer interested in holding that which is causing us pain. It's like, well, the sweetness that was there or the 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 power that was there it's it's gone it loses its color it loses its its strength uh, in the mind and we're able to to put it down and when we put something down it doesn't mean to say that we're we're trying to get rid of it which is like when we find ourselves attached to something attached to emotions or views or opinions we're not trying to to get rid of them or destroy them but just to be able to see through them, to see that every, uh, every hope, every fear, every passion, every anxiety is transparent. It's there, but it's not there. It's real, but it's not real. So we don't have to get rid of things, just learn how to, to put them down, to not cling to them, and then we discover the freedom of the mind. It can abide at that place of, of simply knowing, not grasping to anything, not pushing anything away. So I offer these thoughts for you to consider this evening. Mm-hmm.